authentic. Authentic Mexican food. Any fans out there? An authentic leather couch or leather jacket. An authentic Harley Davidson motorcycle. An authentic dining room china set from the 19th century found in your local antique store. An authentic signature of your favorite Christian author or theologian, or maybe your famous sports player or actor or singer. Friends, do you like things that are authentic? Authentic means not false. It's the real deal. Genuine. That which is true and verifiable to its original source. So for all the foodies out there, you of all people would know the actual difference between real, authentic Mexican food and, say, Taco Bell. No offense. Or Tacos for Life. Or whatever you might find under the heat lamps at a Casey's gas station. Though on the outside, the food might appear similar. The ingredients are different. The preparations of how it is made are different. And therefore, the taste and texture of the food is going to be different. And why is that? Well, Because authentic Mexican food is food that is actually being made typically by those who are from Mexico or those who have been trained to cook Mexican food in its original forms with all its cultural cooking secrets. So what would be the opposite of authentic? Well, it would be that which is fake, superficial, artificial, veneer, a facade, a cheap imitation of the original, a phony, a counterfeit. I remember as a kid, my grandmother and grandfather used to take me and my brother to the mall, and we liked to go to the arcade games. Uh, in Savannah, it was called Tilt, was the arcade game. Sad, it is no longer there. One of those games that we used to enjoy playing, at least I did, were the ones where you dropped a few quarters in to drop that metal claw down. You know what game I'm talking about? like Toy Story. Ooh, the claw. Yeah, I love that game. It's so addicting to grab the stuffed bear, to grab the football, to grab that plastic toy. I remember one time as I was getting a little older, you know, nine or ten, very mature in life, I saw those shiny watches or those shiny necklaces. And I remember thinking, I don't care how much money I have to spend my grandma's quarters I'm going to get that jewelry. They look like Rolexes. That shouldn't surprise us that something like that would captivate a young boy's heart. I remember one time finally clawing down one of those pieces of shiny jewelry, but then after wearing that watch or necklace for a few days at school, I noticed looking at my wrist that my skin was turning a different color. It was a total letdown in the end. It was a letdown because the shiny and expensive looking jewelry wasn't real. It wasn't authentic. I think I spent more money trying to win the fake gold or fake silver jewelry than what it actually was worth. 
Needless to say, I didn't try to win that shiny piece of jewelry anymore after that. But friends, authenticity isn't something we value just in things like food or jewelry or signatures of old books by authors and singers and sports stars. Authenticity is something we tend to prize, to prioritize, and to long for in things like friendships, family, marriage. Authenticity is something we tend to crave deep down inside and even cry out to God for in our churches too. A longing to hear sound biblical preaching and teaching. A longing not have to look on the internet at podcasts and books of men across the country to be fed, but to have it in your own hometown. To be a part of a church where you don't just attend, but belong to that church. And belong to a church that thinks carefully, obediently, strategically, courageously, and generously about discipling one another. Evangelism and missions, both locally, nationally, and internationally. But you see, most, if not all of us, we don't long for authenticity in a church like that until we've realized we've been sold a bill of goods. Until we realize we've been tricked, maybe our entire life, by the cheap imitation of something, whether from poor examples and leaders or poor teaching or both. And then in God's amazing kindness, he shows us a better way. In God's kind and merciful providence, it's after we've encountered the cheap imitation of something that we really want the real thing, something with substance, something with depth, something that lines up with this book and actually see it transform our lives. Uh, Friends, when you follow Jesus, when I follow Jesus, God takes great pleasure in showing us the phony and superficiality that so many professing Christians play in. And then he shows us the real thing. A real church that preaches the real gospel with real sinners who have real problems but look to a real Savior who can actually transform us from the inside out. Friends, Christianity, if understood from what we read in the pages of the Bible, if it is true, if it is authentic, if it is real as it claims to be, then no one in this room should settle for less. None of us should settle for less than when God intends for his beloved children, both in our individual lives, but also in the life of our local church. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to 3 John. If you're from the UK, which we have two members, it's 3 John, but 3 John for the rest of us. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on pages 593 and 594. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can read, take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. This morning, we begin a new but short sermon series in the New Testament letter of 3 John. In fact, in its original language, which it was written in Greek, 
The letter of 3 John contains just over 200 Greek words, making it the shortest letter of the entire Bible. 2 John takes a very close second place right before this letter. We're going to spend our time this morning focusing on verses 1 to 8, and then, Lord willing, next week we'll conclude our study by looking closer at verses 9 to 15. But to grasp kind of a, I guess you could just say a feel for the letter as a whole, uh, this morning I'm going to read all 15 verses to begin our time. 3 John, starting in verse 1. Please follow with me. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, to testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This is God's word. The letter of 3 John is not only very short in its length, but it's actually a very straightforward letter. The first eight verses are saturated. They're pregnant. They are packed with godly encouragement and godly affirmation. And while verses 1 to 8 are very encouraging and affirming, verses 9 to 15 are a mixed bag of warnings and concerns along with instructions and some more godly encouragements. The author of this letter is the Apostle John. Though his name is not explicitly mentioned in this letter, uh, the themes of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John are all very similar. So maybe this week, if you haven't already, or it's been a while, maybe read 1 John and 2 John, and then compare the themes that you read in those letters with 3 John that we're going to be looking at this week and next week. We know that John wrote 1 John because of his opening prologue of having walked with the Lord Jesus when he was on earth and when he had been resurrected from the dead. You don't need to turn there, but you can just listen afresh. 1 John 1, verses 1 to 3, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is John. He's just opening up the first of his latter three epistles, speaking of his intimate knowledge of having seen, having heard, having touched the very word of life, Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate. As you may recall, Jesus, or rather John, is one of Jesus' 12 original apostles. So in order to be an authentic apostle of Jesus Christ, you had to have some qualifications. You can't just self-appoint yourself to be an apostle. What do you want to be when you grow up? A mechanic. What do you want to be when you grow up? A mom. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an apostle. Well, it's not that easy. How did you become an apostle? Well, first you had to be personally selected, hand-chosen, if you will, by Jesus. And you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry, specifically witness his resurrection. Additionally, John is the author of the book of Revelation, and not surprisingly, he is also the writer of the Gospel of John. And contained within that Gospel, John describes himself in the third person as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John chapters 19 to 21. So all that is to say this. John is not a nobody. He is someone that has been mightily used of God since the first day Jesus chose him and had commissioned him as one of the apostles. He was an authentic apostle. He was even in the close inner three circle with Jesus, along with his brother James and, of course, the apostle Peter. As far as the dating of when John wrote his third epistle, we're not 100% sure. Uh, you can look on page 11 in your worship guide and see where most people date the letter of 3 John towards the very end of the first century. But instead of identifying himself as an apostle, I've just spent several minutes explaining. John doesn't actually call himself an apostle in this particular letter. He spends more time describing how he views himself in a different light, how he views specific believers in a certain region, most likely Western Turkey, modern-day Asia, or Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and how he sought to address a problematic person in one of the churches in that region. Uh, you'll notice there at the very beginning of verse 1, John identifies himself not as an apostle or even a disciple of Jesus, though those things are true, but he calls himself the elder. Did you notice that? The elder. The Greek word there is presbyteros. The word could certainly refer to someone who's numerically older in age. So if 1 John was written towards the latter end of the first century, by the time 3 John is written, John's probably around 80 years old or so. So if you're around that age, you could be called elder. And I'll just leave it there. But the word elder was used actually in other ways as well, not just beyond gray hair or back pain. Uh, it could also be used many times in the New Testament to refer to those biblically qualified men that are called by God and set apart by the local church to be under shepherds or pastors. Sometimes the office of elder is also used interchangeably with bishop or overseer. Uh, those same terms that you've heard many times the last two and a half years, 
pastor, elder, overseer, they're all referring to the same biblical office. Passages like Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, you can look at those in your own time. Uh, since John is identifying himself as an elder, much like the apostle Peter did in 1 Peter 5, 1, John's either the pastor of a particular local church, most likely in Ephesus, or he was serving in a pastoral oversight way over a whole region there in Asia Minor. I think it's probably both, to be honest. Uh, he's most likely writing from the church in Ephesus as a prominent leader, and he has lots of influence over other churches. He's an apostle. He's a living apostle, which means he has the same authority that Paul did and the other apostles when writing and leading and instructing these churches. Now, it shouldn't surprise us then if, if John has all this authority, if he has all this influence, people look at him as the elder, this older, wiser, godly man in the church in Ephesus. It shouldn't surprise us how John then viewed other Christians and how he addressed problems in other churches. So, for example, look down with me in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He describes believers as my children. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In Scripture, this is often referred to as spiritual children. Not that John had hundreds and thousands of biological children, but he's speaking in a spiritual sense. Sinners who have become Christians, perhaps even under his ministry. Paul even uses that same language in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15, to speak of the Corinthians who were converted under his ministry. They viewed him as a spiritual father in the faith because they became born again under his ministry. But this language doesn't necessarily mean these were converts under John's ministry. It could simply be a way a pastor would speak about his congregation or a mature mom or dad, mature Christian, thinking about other Christians that they're discipling and caring for. But then look at verse 9. We see that John not only has spiritual influence, but he's got spiritual authority. Look at verse 9. He says, I have written something to the church. We're not sure exactly which church it is. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Again, John's not a nobody. He's an apostle. And when apostles speak, they are representing King Jesus' authority to the churches. And here we see John dealing with an issue. He wrote to a church, it says, and we're not exactly if that letter is 2 John he's referring to or some lost letter. Uh, either way, he is exerting and showing his authority in dealing with this problematic diatrophies we're going to look at later that was defying his authority. And it's also important to note how personal the tone of this letter is. Unlike most of the letters in the New Testament that were written to churches, so Christians in the plural, this letter is specifically written to one individual Christian. One Christian man named Gaius. We see his name there show up in verse 1. Look with me at verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Gaius was a very common name in the Roman Empire, so it might be as common as Bob or Chris or Dan or whatever might have been popular in your upbringing. Now the names are just all over the place. I, I, I can't even keep up with them. But Gaius was just a very common name in the Roman Empire. 
So we shouldn't be surprised if you did a Google search or a Bible gateway or you tried to look up the name Gaius in the New Testament, you're going to see it pop up multiple times. There's a Gaius of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.14, Romans 16.23. There's a Gaius of Macedonia, Acts 19.29. And there's a Gaius of Derby, Acts 20, verse 4. So all those instances are Christians. They're co-workers working with Paul. These different men named Gaius. But the Gaius that we're looking at this morning, he's probably not any of those. And all we know about this man is what we find in this letter. And here's what we find out. We find out how much John, the elder, the apostle, how much he thought of Gaius. And how much other believers in other churches and missionaries thought of Gaius. Friends, that's what exactly the entire, the bulk of 3 John's all about. It's a godly encouragement and godly affirmation towards one individual Christian. And simultaneously, this letter is also about how a church functions together in a healthy way to bless one another, to care for one another, and support the great commission that Jesus gave us. So if you're taking notes, I have one main idea with three several or three sub points under them for our verses one to eight this morning. One main idea. I'll repeat it a few times and I'll repeat it at the end of the sermon. The great commission is accomplished through healthy local churches that consist of faithful members who support faithful missionaries. The Great Commission is accomplished through healthy local churches that consist of faithful members who support faithful missionaries. Now, before we look at the Great Commission, biblically, and the Great Commission and how it applies to us here at CCBC, let's spend the bulk of our time looking closely at this warm, affectionate, and authentic relationship between John and Gaius. Because if we at CCBC, we want to experience authentic Christianity, authentic Christianity that is warm and affectionate and authentic in our relationships. Friends, we've got a wonderful example here in 3 John. And from this commendation by John of Gaius' example, we also learn what it means to be a faithful church member who supports faithful missionaries, or you might say faithful goers that the Lord raises up. Here's those three subpoints. John offers, number one, a prayer marked by genuine love and care. A prayer marked by genuine love and care. That's verses one and two. Then John offers, number two, a praise report filled with joy and encouragement. A praise report filled with joy and encouragement. That's verses 3 to 6a. And lastly, John then offers, number three, a pastoral reminder of the church's mission from Jesus. A pastoral reminder of the church's mission from Jesus. That's verses 6b to 8. Let's look at that first point together, a prayer marked by genuine love and care. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well 
with your soul. Friends, true Christians truly love one another. True Christians truly love one another. John, who was the disciple whom Jesus loved, showed evidence of the love of Christ abiding in his life by his abiding love for this fellow believer, Gaius. In fact, right there at the very beginning, a total of four times throughout the letter, he calls Gaius beloved. Did you notice that? Verse 1, the beloved Gaius. Verse 2, he begins with beloved. Verse 5, beloved. And verse 11, beloved. That word just simply means a dear friend. Someone that he held close to his heart with love and deep appreciation and affection. Friends, as strange as that might sound for us at first, this is actually how Christians often spoke to one another in the first century. And this is actually John's favorite description when he's speaking to the recipients of his letters. He calls them beloved. Uh, sometimes the phrases brothers or brothers and sisters is used throughout the New Testament. And we see it there even in 3 John, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 10, we see the brothers. That's probably the most common way um, that Christians spoke to one another throughout the New Testament. We even see a few instances, and here in verse 15, of Christians calling one another friends. Look with me at verse 15. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Uh, friends, why do we call each other friends? Why do we love each other as friends? Well, it's because Jesus modeled what it means to be a true friend towards us. You remember Jesus' words in the Upper Room Discourse? In John 15, verses 12 to 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. John loved Gaius because he was a fellow Christian. And he loved Gaius because he was a fellow child of God like himself. Friends, one of the ways you'll know an authentic Christian from a counterfeit Christian, someone who says they're a Christian but they're not, is whether a pattern of love towards other believers shows up in their life or not. Do you realize you can affirm orthodox doctrine, the Trinity, the Bible's the inspired word of God, justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Friends, we can affirm the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. We can sign and affirm every Orthodox Christian doctrine. And yet, if we say we believe these things and do not show an abiding, growing, remaining, progressively showing up in our life, love for other Christians, friends, we're deceived. We're not walking in the light. We are walking in darkness. John would even say in 1 John that we lie and do not practice the truth. Friends, how can we 
be loved as much as we have by Jesus and yet not show that same type of love towards other followers of Jesus. For John, his love for Gaius as a fellow believer was self-evident. He's not trying to trick anybody. It's very obvious all throughout this letter. It was obvious to Gaius who received it, and it should be obvious to us. Members of CCBC, is your love and my love for other Christians, is it obvious? Is it self-evident? When someone is given the question, describe Michael or Randall or Krista or Ann or Roy or Blake, describe in 30 seconds or less, does loving come up in those 30 seconds? Friends, as Christians, that is one of the fruits of the Spirit that God makes very self-evident in those whom he changes from the inside out. Friends, ask yourself that question. Is our love for other believers obvious and self-evident? Maybe spend time reading 1 John this week, specifically 1 John chapter 4, and use those questions in that text as a personal reflection with you and the Lord. But John also looked for another reason, I would even argue for a deeper reason than simply because they were another Christian. John loved Gaius because of the truth that bound them together. Look what he said in verse one. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love, did you see the last phrase there? In truth. Friends, what is the truth that John is alluding to here? Well, if you read throughout the gospel and you see these letters in the New Testament, the truth is that which centers on God himself, on who Jesus Christ is, and the claims and the promises that the gospel, the word of truth, has on our lives. Friends, the truth is unveiled reality. The truth is like acknowledging the sun in the sky this morning. The sun is, regardless if I think it is or isn't, according to God's truth and who he is, it's not up for grabs. The truth is not subjective. It's an objective fact. The truth is the crystal clear certainty of that which is authentic and faithful to God's self-disclosure. The truth is seeing what God sees, loving what God loves, teaching what God teaches, and living in step with the precepts and commandments and truth of God. As Christians, we believe in a real God who is the living and true God. And this God is the triune God of Holy Scripture. Friends, he has revealed himself. He has sent his Son to be the true bread from heaven for our hungry souls. So to my non-Christian friend, this world is filled with half-truths, quarter-truths, and rank lies. If you don't want to be deceived and sold a bill of goods of why you exist and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a human being, you have to know the God who has never lied. It's not going to the university. It's not reading secular psychology. 
It's not turning on TikTok or social media to find out what the average teen or bopper or whatever they call them these days is posting about themselves. Friends, if you want to know the truth of creation's purpose, the truth about ourselves and the truth about how to know this God, you have to first acknowledge you are a sinner before a holy God. The truth of the matter is this. We are in big trouble with this truth-telling God. We have sinned. We have fallen short. We have bought lies hook, line, and sinker, and we need rescue. We don't need just a leg up in life. We need to be resurrected from the dead. Friends, this God is in the business of speaking truth into our darkness and waking us up from death to life. Jesus said in John 8, 31 to 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is in the business of telling people the truth. And friends, if we believe in Jesus, we will begin to love and walk in the truth just like Jesus. Jesus even prays. Did you know the high priestly prayer? If you ever want to know, what is Jesus praying for me in my life right now? I mean, I hear it in the gospel presentation every Sunday, Blake. What is he doing at the right hand of the Father? What is he doing? Well, of many things, like running the universe, he's interceding for every child of God that belongs to him. But what is he praying? John 17 is a wonderful place to camp out on. And of all the things that he prays for his disciples and his church until he comes back, listen to John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So as Christians, though we might live in a fallen world where sin distorts us, it lies to us, and even deceives us at times, the hope of the gospel gives us the assurance that we aren't left enslaved to sin. We're not left blinded to the false promises of sin anymore. And though in our flesh we might be tempted to sin, we now have God's spirit, the spirit of truth living in us to help us know right from wrong, to help us choose that which is pleasing to God and to reframe what is displeasing to God. Friends, God even gives us new taste buds to love and delight in the truth he reveals to us. What is authentic Christianity? What is the real deal if we take the New Testament and all of Scripture at face value? Authentic Christianity is when sinners hear the truth and come to love and obey the truth they hear from God. Authentic Christianity is when sinners become adopted children of God by faith in Christ, and then they show the love of Christ to those who belong to Christ. Authentic Christianity is when a body of believers are baked together and welded together to form a local church made up of many members, but all united under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even through the diversity of personalities, ages, preferences, marital status, life experiences, ethnicity, economic demographics, spiritual gifts, and sinful immaturities. Friends, with all our differences, with all the diversity, people who are looking to the same God of truth, to the same Son who is the Word of life and is indwelt by the same Spirit of truth. Friends, He enables us to truly love one another even in the midst 
of diversity, a real love, a real unity because of our love for one another in truth. Members of CCBC, the truth is what binds us together here. You know that, right? Someone says, hey, what's keeping you there at CCBC? Services are long. You're in a gym. Sometimes the speakers are cracking and popping. I mean, don't you want to be in a nice Gothic cathedral or some pillars outside? Well, guess what? We're praying. We're planning. But don't be knocking on our carpet. Don't be knocking on our building. You say, why am I still there? Friends, these two things should always be true. The truth that is proclaimed that binds us together and the love of God revealed amongst the members of this church. It's too hard to leave, even though at times I want to, because I can't deny it. God's truth is changing me. God's love is penetrating my heart. And these dear people are helping me follow Jesus. Friends, that's what a real church is like. Not FACO church. Not Lego church. Not metaverse church. Not play church. Real church. It's the difference between a true church and a false church when the gospel is center and not collecting dust on the back of the room. The statement of faith we affirm and adhere to is a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. The church covenant then gives us guardrails and guidelines of how to love one another in truth. Friends, these things, the power of the gospel, the teaching of God's word, and the commitment of the saints is the very difference between a healthy church and an unhealthy church. Friends, let's not take that unity for granted. Anytime a church is based and bound together primarily by traditions, personalities, prideful egos, personal comfort, and consumerism, God will expose that thin unity in due time. Friends, any time a church is built upon something else other than the truth of God and the love of God, it will crumble like a child's Lego set. But a church that is built upon the truth, that stays the course, and that asks the Lord to increase our love for one another, and that's a church that the Lord takes great pleasure in building up for his glory. Friends, this is what it means to be brothers and sisters. This is what it means to be called children of God. This is what it means to be called friends who belong to Christ. This is what it means to be called the beloved. And one way John shows his love and care for Gaius is how he prayed for him. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Friends, this is just another easy way of John caring for Gaius. He's caring for his overall well-being. He's basically saying this, I pray that you are doing well, Gaius. That's really all it means. We don't need to say more than that or less than that. Friends, as Christians, we too should care about the entire person. We should care about their spiritual life and we should care about their physical health. We should care about their families. We should care about their finances. We should care about the things they enjoy. We should care about the things that they're scared of. 
We should care about their children. We should care about their parents. We should care about everything that's going on in one another's lives. In Christianity, we're not Gnostics. We don't downplay the flesh and say only the spiritual is good. No, that's heresy. We are embodied souls. We are spiritual creatures in real human bodies. So friends, when you see John here praying for the well-being of Gaius, he's praying that he continue to do well spiritually and prays that his physical health would be doing well also. That's why in our church covenant, we commit, we will not neglect to pray for ourselves and for the spiritual and temporal needs of others. It starts with prayer, and if God gives us the means, we seek to meet those needs along the way. John then moves on from a prayer marked with genuine love and care to highlighting the good fruit that he had seen from Gaius' life. Look with me at point number two, a praise report filled with joy and encouragement. Look with me starting in verse three. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. Uh, today is Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day, moms. I think every Christian mom would say that one of the greatest joys a child could ever bring a mom is hearing that their child or children are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is part of the church where y'all don't get to see, but I see all the heads nod. If mamas, you can give an amen if you really like it. Don't be shy. It's, we're not shy down here. A Christian mom who cares about her children, regardless if they are in grade school, college, or in their adult years, cares mostly, not only, but mostly, about how their children are doing spiritually with the Lord. More important than a good job, more than a wonderful husband or wife, more than a better, beautiful home, more than even great health, though those are all things that mamas are going to care about for their kids. A Christian mom who fears the Lord, cares about their child's heart before this God. And friends, that is a highly commendable desire to have. Care for the souls of your children and pray down heaven until God saves them or takes you home and answers the prayer when you're gone. Many of children have become born again from a God-fearing mama. Don't stop praying for your kids. Don't give up. God knows exactly where they're at. He knows their home address. He knows their future, and he knows their hearts. He cares, he cares about your children more than you do. And I know that's really hard to hear it sometimes. How could you ever say someone loves my kids more than Mama Bear? Well, God Almighty does. God hears your prayers. Take heart. He is working even when we're not paying attention. Continue to walk with the Lord yourself. The greatest gift you can give your children is a life fixed and focused on Jesus. Because if your eyes are focused on Jesus, your joy in Jesus will remain, regardless of how your children are ultimately doing. Kids and students, honor your moms and dads. I know it can be hard at times. I know sometimes your parents frustrate you. They too were once kids living at home with their parents. But honor your mom and dad. They love you. They want what's best for you. Trust that they want what's best for you. 
And the greatest thing you can do for them is get serious in your relationship with Jesus. Make your bed. Do well in school. Don't take on your siblings. But get real with Jesus real early. That will bring great joy to any mom and to any dad. And that's what we see here in this section. John views Gaius, and really like all Christians for that matter, as his spiritual children. And when John gets a testimony from other believers about how Gaius is walking in obedience to the Lord, did you notice verse 4? His heart is filled with great joy. And this is the heart of a pastor when he sees his congregation growing in godliness. This is the heart of an elder board seeing the church prosper and mature and make disciples. Uh, he receives here a kind of verbal report card from other brothers that show up in John's office, if he had one, and they're talking about how gracious, how generous, how faithful, how obedient Gaius has been to these traveling believers who had visited the church. At first, John calls them brothers, just again, another word for Christians, but he also tags on this interesting other phrase. Do you see there in verse 5? He calls them strangers as they are. What does he mean by that? Does he mean like guys is hanging out with strange weirdos? Not exactly. They are strange or foreign or unknown to Gaius. They were Christians that he had never met before. But because of the Jesus they mutually loved and the spirit-filled fellowship that they shared, they didn't need to know one another for years to truly love each other. Friends, have you ever experienced that before in your Christian life? You meet a Christian on a plane, a train, the church lobby. You've never met him before, but you find out they're a believer. It's like all of a sudden lights turn on, joy is full, and you start going deep and getting real with them quicker than you have most of your family you've known for years. Friends, that might be strange to the world, but that is normal for the Christian life. Friends, God has a way of magnetizing believers together when God's Spirit is living in us. That's why it's so sweet to fellowship with Christians. That's why you should never, if you're not having any providential hindrances, don't skip church because you're missing out on the joy of fellowshipping with real Christians who will really love you. Friends, this is what it's normal in the Christian life. God is in the business of dropping believers down on us like rain from the sky to increase our joy in the Lord. It's noteworthy also how fruitful Gaius' life had been too, right? Gaius was like a 360-degree rotating billboard as an advertisement for King Jesus. Verse 3 indicates that these brothers had interacted with Gaius for a time, and they talked about his truth. Did you like that? I like how he says that, his truth. He's marked by it. The truth he believed in, the truth he lived out. This, this dude bled the Bible, loved the Bible, loved the Jesus of the Bible. Again, in verses 5 and 6, John indicates that these brothers testified or reported or talked about his love before the church. How faithful he was in all his 
efforts, his labors, his work to serve them. In other words, it's not just these traveling believers that were deeply blessed by Gaius, but an entire church has seen and testified of his godly reputation as well. Either way, what we see in verses 3 to 6 is an art gallery of God's beauty. We read of the beauty of godly encouragement coming from John to Gaius, godly affirmation coming from the elder to Gaius, and then these churches and missionaries and brothers testifying to Gaius's godly life. Friends, one of the ways we bring God glory in our lives is by paying attention to his work in one another's lives. One of the ways that we bring God glory in our lives is paying attention to his work in one another's lives. But it's not just paying attention to it. It's telling others about it. If you're someone who is tempted towards gossip, ask God to help you work hard at gossiping how godly and spiritually fruitful someone else is. Ask God to give you speech that praises, promotes, and appreciates others, especially over and above yourself. John did that in Gaius' life. These traveling believers did that when speaking about Gaius' life, both to John, but also the church as well. Friends, are you a good encourager? Are you known by others to be quick with intentional thoughtful encouragement? Who's the most encouraging person you know in your life? I can bet you long to be around them most weeks because they breathe life into your winds, into your soul. Friends, if we're not encouraging, then then what are we? We're often cynical, pessimistic, hypercritical, of others. In his book, Practicing Affirmation, if you want to grow and to be a godly encourager, this is a great book to read. Practicing Affirmation by Sam Crabtree. He says this, quote, we are wise to give God-centered thank yous and God-centered affirmations. So if you're here today and you're going, Blake, I really do want to be a better encourager. I'm kind of lousy at it. I wish I was better. Well, I want to encourage us all towards this aspiration, towards godly encouragement. Towards the end of his book, he gives 100 affirmation ideas to those who are feeling stuck. Are you ready for all 100? I'm not, because I only have 12 I wrote down. But here's 12. And if you're going, ooh, that one, that's a good one. Write down number three or something and listen to the sermon later. Here's 12 ideas to begin cultivating a life of godly encouragement. Number one, say I thank God for you to another person and genuinely mean it. Number two, following a worship service, write a note or leave a voicemail for someone who excelled in reverent worship through song or an instrument. They were hospitable and welcoming They were enthusiastic and helpful in scripture reading. They were biblical and heartfelt in their praying, or they were faithful and clear in their preaching. 
In other words, if you've been blessed by what you've seen and heard, tell them. Number three, resolve that before you do any other work, at the office or shop or school today, you will affirm a coworker or fellow student in their hard work. Number four, there's no one more dependable than Jesus, but when someone completes a task you ask them to do, commend their dependability. Reliable people are a valuable asset. Take a moment to say so. Number five, when you read a biography or come across an incident or episode modeling great character, read it to someone or send a photocopy of the paragraph or a screenshot for more modern readers saying something like, this reminds me of you. Number six, when a child brings up something he or she heard in a sermon or in a class, praise them for their attentiveness. Children, I thank God for you that you do come up and tell me what you're learning or what you're drawing. And a few of you, when I ask you what the Lord's teaching you, you give some very thoughtful answers. I know you're listening, and I praise God for your attentiveness. Number seven, commend a self-sacrificing mother or father for their loyalty to their children's welfare. Number eight, tell your wife, mother, sister, or daughter how she reminds you of the noble woman in Proverbs 31. Number nine, praise the obedience of children, then repeat. Number 10, think of the humblest person you know. Now praise that person's humility to somebody else who knows them. Number 11, do you know of a missionary or someone doing something risky but right? Commend their courage. And number 12, do you see someone who is good at welcoming others? inviting them to share in activities, meals, and lodging, commend their hospitality. Friends, we should all pray to be more proactive in godly encouragement, affirming God's grace we're seeing in one another's lives. Friends, pray that CCBC would grow in what it means to be marked by things like encouragement and affirmation and love so that we might be refreshed and strengthened and encouraged when we leave. John's joy here was made full when he heard the wonderful praise reports, the wonderful encouragement from these brothers who had met Gaius. Friends, these brothers, they weren't hitchhikers. They weren't just mooching off the church, just wanting some freebies. These were missionaries who had given their entire life for the advancement of the gospel. How do we know they're missionaries? That leads to point number three, a pastoral reminder of the church's mission from Jesus. It's verses 6b to 8. Look at me starting at verse 6b. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Earlier in the sermon, I gave you the main idea, which was the Great Commission is accomplished through healthy local churches that consist of faithful members who support faithful missionaries. Now, what is the Great Commission? Well, it's the mission. It's 
the marching orders that King Jesus gave his apostles after he resurrected from the dead. And he's given that same mission to his church in subsequent generations until Christ comes back. It's obeying Jesus' sovereign authority over our entire lives by obeying Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Listen carefully. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, every follower of Jesus Christ is called to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. There are no exemptions. Every follower of Jesus, in following Jesus, must learn and should desire to learn to help others follow Jesus. What did Jesus say to his earliest disciples when they were fishing by the Sea of Galilee? Drop your nets and come, follow me. And then what did he say? I will make you fishers of men. Following Jesus largely will show up in our life by helping others follow Jesus. And we read out through the book of Acts and throughout the whole New Testament, in particular, even 3 John, that following Jesus is being wedded and welded and baked into the life of the local church. In fact, three different times, the ecclesia, the church, is mentioned in 3 John. Look at verse 6. They testified before the church. Verse 9, I have written something to the church. Verse 10, and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. But who are these brothers that were strangers to Gaius? They were traveling missionaries. How do we know that? Well, verse 6 says that Gaius and the churches that met these brothers will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. The question then is, what was their journey? What was their path? What was their God-given purpose, calling, or mission? Look at verses 7 and 8. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. That, that phrase there, Gentiles, just means non-Jews, but really more pagans, non-Christians. In other words, they have gone out and are no longer drawing an income from ordinary jobs in the world. They are not depending upon the financial support or means from those who don't know the Lord. But why? Because they have gone out. They have been sent out. Verse 8, therefore we ought to support people. We should support them. We should fork the bill. We should care for them that we may be fellow workers for the truth. The dynamite phrase in this text is not simply those who were going out or even those who support those who go out. But it's that phrase there in verse 7. For they have gone out. For who? They have gone out for the sake of the name. In the Old Testament, 
this is often referring to Yahweh, that his name would be great among the nations. In the New Testament, the name most spoken about is the name of Jesus Christ. The name that is above all other names. The name by which one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Friends, this is the name we are baptized into. When you are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we put on the team jersey to represent King Jesus. Friends, when we call ourselves Christians and we walk around and do what we do day in and day out, we are followers of Christ. We are bearing his name to an onlooking world. And friends, the planting, the multiplication, and the establishment of biblical local churches is God's plan to reach the nations. Missionaries are specific men and women whom the Lord calls, raises up, gifts, and prepares to go out for the sake of the name to the unreached and to the unengaged with the gospel. They are sent out and they are supported to proclaim his name, to see churches planted in his name, to see new converts baptized in this name, to see churches sing of this name. But it's the local church that has been given this ultimate privilege and stewardship to see this carried out. Setting missionaries apart, providing for them, serving them, praying for them, and showing them hospitality. And friends, Gaius is a wonderful example of loving those who've been sent out for the sake of the name. He's commended for his hospitality, his support, and his care. But John says, listen, missionaries are not first-class Christians and everyone else that stays back home just kind of gets the bottom of the barrel. No. When Christians belong to a biblical gospel-preaching neighborhood and nations-oriented mission for King Jesus, we are participating together as a team in the Great Commission. Did you notice there he says, when we support missionaries or people like this, we become fellow workers for the truth. Members of CCBC in the coming years, be praying right now if you haven't begun. Pray that God would bless our church in whatever way he sees fit, that we might be a faithful church that supports faithful missionaries who are sent out for the sake of the name. We are currently in partnership with the Southern Baptist Convention. We cooperate with over 45,000 Southern Baptist churches by contributing some of our funds every year to fund and support missionaries through the IMB, through church planting and revitalization through NAM, also by training pastors, students, and missionaries in six Southern Baptist seminaries. Uh, we give a portion of our money to the Arkansas Baptist State Convention that funds various entities in the state of Arkansas. And God's using those funds, even in our small way as a congregation. But friends, every year the elders are reevaluating our partnerships, thinking biblically and carefully about do we give more here, less here, and do we think more strategically of how to partner with more like-minded churches, more like-minded pastors, more like-minded missionaries 
that have a similar DNA as our own. Friends, be praying for wisdom in that. Pray that God would provide those opportunities that we might be fellow workers for the truth. What does that mean for us here at CCBC? If CCBC is going to participate in this great commission, it means at least two things must be true of us. Two points and we conclude. Number one, Jesus is Lord. Will we obey him? Jesus is Lord. Will we obey him? Jesus is Lord, and we must submit to his authority in every sphere of our life, family, and ministry. Jesus gave up his life for us. He died in our place. He rose from the dead. And since Jesus got up from the dead, friends, everything changes. The purpose of our life, the reason for living, the hope that we have is because he got up from the dead. Friends, that means the gospel, the good news, is the motivation for being a faithful member of a local church. The gospel is the motivation of sending out those who are prepared to take the gospel to the unreached. One author put it this way, Christianity is not the story of mankind seeking the true God. It is the story of God seeking to save rebellious sinners fleeing his presence. Christ was sent by the Father to seek and save the lost. He sends us in the Great Commission to do the same. In other words, we are set apart from the world by the purity and power of his word, but then we are sent into the world, into our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and the nations that others might be saved through this message. Friends, if we want God's absolute best, we want authentic Christianity starting right here in our own midst. Friends, there's no room in the house of our life that can be shut off from King Jesus. Number two, an every member mindset is required. And every member mindset is required. And every member mindset is required for us to go deep together so that we might support and send out those for the sake of the name. Tom Rainer once said this, we who are church members are all supposed to function in the church. The concept of an inactive church member is an oxymoron. Biblically, no such church member really exists. Friends, every member of CCBC is needed in this body. With your, with your spiritual gifts, your time, your attention, your life, your testimony, we need one another to complement to strengthen one another up. Did you notice that John describes these Christians who made up churches that faithfully serve one another and generously send out faithful ministers? He says in verse eight, we ought to support people like these that will be fellow workers for the truth. Most of us will not be missionaries. Most of us will be faithful church members rooted in one location with one body doing the work of ministry right here. But some of us may become missionaries, whether they are raised up from our midst or God brings them to us from the outside. And some of them, we're going to back, support, 
sacrifice for as they go out for the sake of the name. William Carey of England, who has been called the father of modern missions, went to India in 1793. At that time, there were no organized missionary societies, but as Carey prayed over the needs of an unreached world, God laid India on his heart. At a commissioning service for Carey and his colleague in March 1793, one of Carey's friends exclaimed, There is a gold mine in India, but it seems almost as deep as the center of the earth. To which Carey replied, I will venture down, but remember that you must hold the ropes. CCBC, if we want authentic Christianity, there's going to be scars on our hands. Some will go down while others hold the rope. Is the name of Christ worthy to be a church like that? Is the name of Christ in the spreading of his fame among the nations, is he worth it? No matter what risk and no matter what sacrifice is required of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you that in Christ we are beloved. We are your children. And we thank you that you've not left us to just live this Christian life all alone. But you've given us a family and the church. You've given us godly examples to learn from. Lord, we pray that we would think well about John's love and appreciation and encouragement of Gaius. And Gaius' example of modeling what does it mean to serve and support and care for traveling missionaries. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be an encouraging, and a godly, affirming church. And Father, we even pray right now at CCBC, as we are growing deep in our relationships and our love for the truth and one another, Lord, we pray you would send more laborers into the harvest here. Raise up. Help us identify those who you are preparing to be sent out for the sake of the name. All glory be to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.